0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. This, I am so delighted to say, is episode 137, introducing Laura Franco's the Broadway Queen. Welcome, Laura. We are so glad you're here today.
1: I'm very happy to be here.
0: I am especially delighted because I have had a few occasions of inviting people like Chaz and my friend Rich Speakman over and saying, let's just have back to back all of the musicals we can possibly watch. (laughs) They challenged me of who knew who knew more lyrics and I think I won that one, but you may be, after reading your book, the first person who knows more words than I do.
1: Well, in it in addition to uh, my novel Broadway Revival, I have also written a thing called the Broadway Musical Quiz Book, which came out from Applause Books back in 2010, and much to my astonishment, is actually still in print and chugging along.
0: Oh, I know what we need to get Genie for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that just sort of leads me to say there is a there is a game where you all sit around in teams, and they give you a word, and you have to sing. Ten, word, 10 words from a song around that word, like the word yellow, tie a yellow ribbon. R- and then the other team has to do it. And you go back and forth until the other team fails. And <laughs> you it.
2: always win all of these games, genies. Yes. No, no, no. Who
0: no. is the other team that fails, John? I am taking this to the con and we're going to play it with you and me and Madeline Robbins and Chaz, and there's going to be a great deal of drinking involved. This sounds epic. Excellent. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> You write something that's a blog, the Broadway history column called The Great White Wayback Machine. Why is it called The Great White Wayback Machine?
1: I actually was doing that well over a decade ago, almost two decades ago, and have not done much with it since because I wasn't getting paid. And I found that I really needed to be working on the quiz book, which I ultimately sold, and then Broadway Revival, my novel. What the Great White Wayback Machine was, was me riffing on weird aspects of theatrical history, like, for example, cows in musicals. Um, (laughs) No, seriously, there were a lot of them. You all know the story of The Wizard of Oz, of course, right? Well, The Wizard of Oz was a huge, huge Broadway musical in 1903. And Dorothy, Dorothy did not have, a little dog Toto in that she had her companion was a cow.
0: That's magnificent. And then there's cow and in into the woods. Milky Way. Yes, yes.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. So I mean, I, I would do things like that. But I, I, I was doing this for there's a website called talkandbroadway.com. Shout out Talkin Broadway. They have a wonderful chat board called All That Chat, which is very old fashioned. And most of us who hang out there are old farts who talk about the golden age in wistful tones but there's also they also cover new stuff too and i i was doing this for them for a while but then it it became obvious I, this is taking too much of my time and i'm not getting paid so i need to concentrate on things that might ultimately end up being more profitable but yes i like weird broadway history
0: Well, I like one that for listeners that don't know why it's called The Great White Way. And that is not a racial piece. That is actually because there was electricity for the first time brought so that theaters didn't burn down. Did I get that right?
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. One of the first producers, big producers, who had illuminated signage outside at his theater advertising his musicals was a guy named Charles Froman. He helped contribute to that. and it was already being called the Great White Way, but suddenly he's got signs that that were electric in like 1908 (laughs) all over his theater.
0: It was literally your name in lights. And this was Mm -hmm. the first time I think they'd ever really had that, is the ability to create a plug-and-play board. So... (laughs) Our our sound engineer Deirdre, who is a theater tech major, could get very excited about the new technology that was all created just for a theater.
1: Oh, yeah. And and Broadway, Broadway was always on top of technological changes. You would, you would see you uh, will see song songs reflecting you know, the, the development of aviation. I mean, the, the Wright brothers were 1903, and then within a decade you had. Ziegfeld was having his girls dressed up as airplanes there there were musicals about aviatrixes i uh, it you know it it just took off so to speak
0: yeah <laughs>
2: yeah I, I have to say I, I i deeply regret the loss of the word aviatrix
0: <laughs> it's such a beautiful word nobody uses it these days we still use imperatrix here and there yeah yeah
1: they use it in the drowsy chaperone Okay,
2: yeah. It just got used in this conversation. Obviously, we need to bring it back. There that's, we go. that's rather my point. Yeah. Yes.
1: Just be careful if you don't you don't want to insult an aviatrix. Um, if they're flying planes, uh, then they're probably pilots. Pilots, they know what they
0: know what they're doing. Yeah. I lost a whole evening to your new book. Not just an evening. I basically read it until three in the morning. Your latest book called Broadway Revival, which is the most beautiful. Time travel combination with uh, the nicest love story anybody ever wrote to somebody named Gershwin, and I think I had a few questions. The first one is: Is Gershwin your favorite composer from Broadway?
1: No, it's probably Sondheim. Yay!
0: <laughs> I was going to figure out, but I, I, lo- I love George.
1: <laughs> I love I love George so much. Um, Broadway revival is is my is my love letter to the golden age. The, the, the period before Sondheim.
0: It really is. And you accidentally teach people all the way through it as well. And that was another thing that I really liked about it, that you you bring up the truth of what was going on in the world. And here's the bombing of Pearl Harbor this year. And here's here are all of these sociopolitical implications that were reflected on stage and how the music changed and how I, I love that one was just too dirty and people didn't like to see depressing musicals because they wanted musicals to be fluffy
1: This gives me all kinds of warm fuzzies <laughs> Thank you so much
0: I want to know which musical was dirty and and no one would want to see it That was the one that you'll help me with the name but it was a story that somebody wrote about wounded in war the veterans that were hurt mm. or lost limbs and that is a very weighty weighty subject
1: okay well what I'm doing there is premise of Broadway revival is I have a time traveler it's it's the 2070s and his husband has just died from the effects of the latest designer drug and he gets modern medicine of the you know late 21st century hijacks his brother's time machine hmm. and goes back to 1934 to cure George Gershwin and change musical theater history but the other thing that happens is it's not just him with his agenda to save Gershwin and there were other greats who went too soon? He could cure them with things like simple things like you know, tuberculosis is is is
0: hmm.
1: a snap to cure to you
0: know, and or the aspirin for the heart attack. Yes,
1: exactly, exactly. So he he wants to save the ones that were lost too soon. But we also have and alternate history is a big thing in our house. But what hap- <laughs> what ha- yes, what happens no, 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 when no. what happens when you dump? someone who has nearly a century and a half of knowledge of how musical theater is going to develop back into 1934. What are the ramifications, not just when he's, he's keeping George Gershwin and others alive longer, but what kind of an impact is he himself going to have? And so that musical that you referenced there with Wounded Veterans That's not anything that exists in our timeline. Right. That's something that comes about because of changes he's bringing about. Mm one advantage that he has is, is we we've, we've all seen Back to the Future. We all know that you know what do time travelers do when they're short of money? They bet on sports because they know the outcome. Well, my time traveler doesn't have to do that. He he just goes and he says, okay, I'm going to invest in you know Life with Father or or you know Oklahoma, and these are going to have massive long runs, and there's there's my income. It's set, so I can I can play around. I can do other things. And it doesn't matter if I produce a show that deals with wounded veterans in a way that is shocking to early 1950s Mm -hmm. audience, because if I lose money there, well, it doesn't matter. But he's Mm -hmm. doing all of these kind of little things that are influencing the timeline in more subtle ways than just merely saving some of the greats from an early death.
0: I was willing to say that it was probably real because... We went from Oklahoma, which is the most whitewashed version of Oklahoma that ever lived, into we later have things like Miss Saigon, and that is not a happy-go-lucky show. No, nope, no, nope, not at all.
1: But you know, if you look two two years after after Oklahoma, Rogers and Hammerstein are doing are doing Carousel, and Carousel has some very very dark aspects to it. Yes, it does, including including a suicide. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, they talked about it, and they joked about it, and his, I was gonna thinking that, you know, if you were sung the song Poor Jud is Dead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go try to convince somebody that he should kill himself. That's pretty hefty for a hero to do. Yes, that is. Even to a bad guy. I mean, there's there's a lot of depth in musicals that I think a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate because they just see a song and dance. They don't see... Mm-hmm you know, have you thought about the song Give Me Three Steps from Leonards Skin? And my God, that's a terrible song.
1: <laughs> all the all these shows that we're mentioning here, the lyricist and librettist for this, these were, of course, the great Oscar Hammerstein, mm-hmm. who, ah. in my estimation, is the single most significant influence on the evolution of the musical theater in the 20th century because of all of the things Sondheim, obviously. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And, yes and, and, and add in, in addition to all the shows that he did that he mentored Sondheim, yes, I'm yep. definitely factoring that in. He did Showboat in 1927
0: mm-hmm.
1: with Jerome Kern. And even though he soft peddled the ending from Edna Ferber's book, he gave it a happier ending for his Broadway audiences than is actually in the book. He's still dealing with 40 years of history in, in one show, which is just not done in the 1920s. Yeah. <laughs> He's dealing with miscegenation. He's dealing with racial issues. He's dealing with gambling. He's dealing with husbands who desert their wife and child. Yeah, there's heavy stuff happening in in
0: Showboat. And yeah. you know, that's yeah. Oscar Hammerstein.
2: Yeah. Should I read the book?
0: Because I haven't. Oh, dear God, yes. (laughs) How are we going to have things to talk about over, you know, chocolate and bonbons and cheese if you don't? It's fabulous. Okay, I'll read the book. I can. How did you plot it out with, okay, this is a time-traveling book, and time-traveling can be, I have read some great time-traveling short stories and long stories, and then some really, I want to say, dodgy and mediocre ones. And Laura, I really liked yours.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I mean, Um I... Previously, I always loved to buy his bootstraps for one of the shorter, simpler versions that Heinlein pulled off. But you pulled it off in an interesting way and said, you answered the why and what do people get out of it? In the end, you said, what's their material money motivation for doing any of this? And that made it all plausible.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, How did I how did I plot things? I am definitely more a seat of the pants writer than someone who outlines obsessively, although I do tend to Make tons and tons and tons of post-it notes and index cards and you know scribble things on sheets of paper and have them all around because I can't keep things up in my head. Unlike someone else who lives in this house who could keep <laughs> so many <laughs> things in his head. It's, you know, You're not not
2: level of resentment
1: <laughs> We're not it's talking just, about. I can't. I you. can't operate like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have to write it down. Otherwise, I'm going to lose it. Yeah, I do not have an outline. I knew where I needed to get, and I knew. I knew I needed to start in 1934 because his initial goal, the most serious goal, that my time traveler, whose name is David Greenbaum, my, my goal that David has is he wants to cure Gershwin's tumor. There is discussion of exactly what kind of tumor George Gershwin had, whether anything could have been done about it. It's likely that even given 1930s, Um, medical technology and expertise that if they had recognized the signs, they might've done something before it fulminated and killed him. But I want to give my time traveler the stuff to make it go away entirely. I don't necessarily know if by 2079, we will have that, but for the purposes of my book, we do. Mm. Gershwin was already having headaches and stomach issues by 1934. And I decided that's a good time. To try to get him down there, get 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 my time traveler established, get him to the point where hopefully he can get to meet Gershwin and might have an opportunity to give him the dose that will that will cure him.
0: I love the way that you tie everything together and saying this is how people get to know each other in the industry. And frankly, it was any in industry. And I was literally thrown back to one of my own experiences of a, a boyfriend who wanted to kind of separate me from the crowd and <laughs> Be, be the big one. So he took me to a heavy metal bar because I'm not a heavy metal person. However, I've been a band geek for like 11 years out in Colorado. And of course, I knew everybody including the band on stage it was singing into the microphone and he was very put out. And I loved that you used that general community sense that is within writers and it's within music within all these different areas to say, this is how you get to know people, you're going to be in the right place in the right time. And he had some foreknowledge, which makes it easy. Or easier. Mm -hmm. But his networking was in its own way, I wanted to say, brilliantly done, brilliantly put together. How do you say the right thing? How do you figure out? How do you make it so that I want to be friends? I want to be tag along and make you feel good about helping me. But secretly, I'm trying to save your life. You just don't know it. That was awesome.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. It helped that Gershwin himself was an incredibly gregarious soul and was given to helping younger songwriters they did have time traveler go to uh, they had what they called little festivals at uh, Gershwin's penthouse and there was just standing invitation for a lot of the Broadway community just to you know show up there at George's and there'd be music and talk and singing and bragging and boozing and (laughs) and you know that that's my time traveler's gateway there he's he's in he's in there he's he's meeting Georges Kaufman he's meeting Oscar Levant and Ooh. let me tell you there are a few things that are more fun in this world than writing dialogue for Oscar Levant <laughs> um, unless it's writing dialogue for La Lanya because that is a, oh a, a, just a, a kick as well
2: oh ah oh. yeah I I feel obliged at this point to in my own defence, point out that when I said, should I read the book a little while ago, I actually meant should I read the book that led to Showboat, not should I read the book that Laura wrote, which, <laughs> God, yes, I'm totally going to do. You know, this leads on to an interesting thing that a lot of the time I feel that we don't track musicals back to their source material. I had no idea that Showboat was a book originally, and... I mean, until I was a grown-up, I didn't know that there were books about thing. Also, what's name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, you take my point, despite that I'm losing titles here. Would, would your time traveller, if he was producing musicals or, or investing in musicals, would there be a thing where he would take a novel that he knows is going to become great later? And and push it towards.
1: Yes, I do that.
2: Away! <laughs> oh, hey! oh, I'm delighted.
1: <laughs> In this era, you had, aside from reviews, which were which yeah. were still hugely popular and yeah. often had often had themes, book musicals were either entirely original. Say, for example, the Gershwin's of the I Sing, oh, written with Maury Ma- 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 <laughs> Ma- 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 yeskin, yeskin George George's Kaufman, and um, Maury Ma- Ma- Riskin. Um, and uh, so you have you have totally original material, or you have things that are adapted from novels, or you have things that are adapted from plays. Those those are that's where your book musicals are coming from. One of the things this this kind of segs in with the, the question about how how I was plotting what was going to happen here. I knew there were a bunch of projects that Gershwin, Kurt Weill, Larry Hart were interested in doing that they never got around to doing. So I had things to start with right there, you know, and I knew that say, for example, Ira Gershwin, one of his favorite novels was around the world in 80 days in this, in, in our timeline, Cole Porter took a whack at that. It flopped horribly. That doesn't happen in my timeline, but uh, (laughs) I do, I do have, I do have the Gershwins getting around to it. So things like that, but to tie into what you were saying about you know novels that my time traveler might think were good, there is a terrific novel about the jazz world called Young Man with a Horn, okay. that was made into a very good movie. But as Hollywood did in those days, you know they they made alterations, they softened things, and all I could think of this came out after Gershwin died. But all I can think about was this is just the sort of material that if he uh-huh. had an if he had an adventurous producer. Yeah. One who would say, we're not going to soften the ending, even though, you know, (laughs) audiences are going to balk. Yeah. Do this, George. Let's do this.
2: Yeah. Historically, did he have an adventurous producer at all? I mean, was there one out there? I mean, even, even. Well, you
1: have the Theater Guild taking a huge gamble and and losing it with with Porgy and Bess.
0: But then there was the revival, which you bring up.
1: Well, see, you now Porky and Bess got its revival in 1942 here, and everybody realized, "Oh my God, yeah, this is freaking good! Why didn't we notice this back in 1935?" Ooh, ooh, ooh! But the impetus there is, of course, Gershwin's tragic death.
2: Yes did did it flop in
1: 35? Yes, he lost not money. Know this mm-hmm. I had no idea. People didn't know. People didn't know what to make of it. Uh, it it sure. was, it, you know, it was popular with some. Mm-hmm. But it it just did not take off. The the song the all the songs that we know the hit songs that, that all came about much later.
2: Okay.
1: In fact, when Gershwin died in 1937, the value of value summation was 250 dollars. What? That's how much, that's how much poor and Dust was worth. 250 dollars. Uh-huh.
0: Wow. There is also something that you bring the curtain back on to show backstage that I think a lot of people that think to themselves, I wanna be in musicals or I wanna be on Broadway or this, forget, if I was struck by the frenetic pace and you gather all the things together and say, they're doing this show and then this show and the next one. And so people are always writing and always rehearsing the next one that this is very full life. It's not the fact that you wanna add champagne parties on top of that, it you really did kind of, intimate that this was a job and this was a hustle constantly, 24-7, and I liked that. I think that really sort of explained people a little bit more of the, the art and the putting together of theater, just by you have historical characters and you say, wow, if they had this many hits come out, these are guys that wrote hundreds, like 28 stage musicals, hundreds and hundreds of songs. I think like Lauren's heart wrote something yeah. like 500 songs or more than that when yeah. he was working with Rogers and mm-hmm. and so many and that's I mean, when you think oh like I've written I have written a story or I've written a book now and like yeah well talk to me when you've written 500 yeah. <laughs> it Seems to be the musical version of it and I love that you conveyed that so well in the book just by your character following these people around
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I do appreciate that. It was a time, even even in the 30s, with productions declining in number from what they were in the 20s, which was just astronomical. But one of the biggest differences is you had so many more shows because shows did not run as long. You know, the economics of Broadway are such today that it is so expensive. If you get a show to Broadway, it has to stay there and run and run and run and run. And of course, if it's hogging a theater for years, literally years, you don't have new material coming in. The turnaround was much faster back then. You could have a play. If a play ran for three months in the 1920s or 30s, that was a good run. Three months you didn't need to be up there you know 500 500 performances was the mark of a smash hit
2: mm-hmm. the long
1: long runs all came later
2: okay right. yeah i mean i i remember remember the days of repertory theater in the uk where the actors and director were putting on a new play every fortnight mm-hmm. um and they'd be you know they'd be performing in the evening and rehearsing the next play in the morning yep yeah it's it's i mean it's it's always been a a rush thing what's next what's next what's next surely well,
0: you have to have the follies for somebody to write an entire musical about the follies right <laughs> yes. yes so when you were sitting down and doing this do you what are your just dedication to the craft here are you a get up in the morning and sit and get your coffee and write right away or are you impulsive tell us about your process
1: i would tend to work more in the afternoon by this by the time i was working on Broadway revival. Our kids were either in high school or college or even finishing. So I, I I tend to work most in the afternoon. I do need I do need my coffee in the morning. That is that is a given. Is right writer, writers drinking coffee? But uh, I, I I won't have it now. Uh, it, would, it would keep me up, and I don't do decaf. But tend to read more in the morning, and work more in the in the afternoon.
2: Okay,
0: that um, was the time for read to coffee.
2: Yes. What? Red coffee is the best coffee. It really is. I may have said that <laughs> a time or two. I My pattern goes completely the other way from that. I can work in the mornings, I can write in the mornings, and I can write in the evenings, but afternoons are dead to me.
0: I liked that he had in his own, in, in a certain way, your time traveler created his own production. And yes. and that's one of the neat thing. He called it the Broadway Revival Project, and that's yes. where you clearly got the. So I guess how did you decide on a title, or was it just that was the title came first or the book came first?
1: Oh no, the book came first, but then I decided that would be because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to, he wanted to revive Golden Age Broadway with you know those Gershwin and the others that went too soon. Mm-hmm. Keep uh, them alive and
0: strategically, and, you know, inject them yes. with money. That's beautiful. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. indeed. Can we talk about
2: your previous career? Because you were a novelist before you were a Broadway specialist, I think.
1: Oh no, I, I, I've I've always been a Broadway nerd. I mean that that goes back to childhood.
2: Okay, sure, but 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 there are novels by Laura Frankos that are not Broadway novels. There is
1: there is one. I I did a mystery novel called Saint Oswald's Niche that is now out of print, and that involved. Uh, medieval archaeology and academics and a murder and, and alternate like
2: history. I want this. I yeah. want this.
1: Bring it back.
2: Yes. I, Regain I, your
1: life uh, and and bring it back.
2: We'll help. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Okay. And I have done a number of uh, short stories in both analog and in anthologies. And surprisingly enough, a number of those have to do with theatrical themes. No, so for, no, for for, anal, for analog, I, ha- I have a story where I have a time traveler who is, uh, she's humanoid in form, uh, and she is currently out of touch with her mothership, as it were, and she gets a job dancing in a Broadway chorus.
0: Excellent. Oh. <laughs> that's that's called, that's
1: called Hoofer. And another story I did for analog that Stan Schmidt was stunned me when he bought it Mm -hmm. uh, as The Great White Way and I have two virtual reality game programmers who are co-workers one kind of likes the other but things haven't been right along and he's an Andrew Lloyd Webber fan and she's a Sondhead and they in their spare time are designing a virtual reality game in which characters from Sondheim musicals and Lloyd Webber musicals are doing a scavenger hunt
0: Yes. Oh. Yes. Are, are they doing English. it in the woods? Um, um. Uh, <laughs> uh, fabulous. I, um, I, I
1: have all sorts of things in there.
0: Yes.
2: Uh,
1: um, you know, so and I did. I did a fantasy novel for 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 uh, one of Esther Friesner's things that essentially involved the creation of the musical. Uh, it did, it, did, I did, remember you, did that. Any, did any of you see the the show Something Rotten? Yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. So well, there, there's there's this hole in there where we're essentially they're they're inventing the musical in in Shakespearean London, and i and they're they're riffing on so many of the things that I did in that story that it was kind of <laughs> freaking me out. <laughs> so yeah, I remember that story. I because I'm friends with Esther and I I know your name. I knew I knew your name. Yeah, I've, been, um, I've, I've, I've been a few of the Chicks and Chainmail. There's there's one story that I did for the Chicks and Chainmail that was essentially riffing on the mu- Kurt Vile musical uh, One Touch of Venus. Mm-hmm. Okay. If only I I, ha- I have it's instead of a statue of Venus coming to life uh, and causing chaos, yeah. uh, I, I I have it as a statue of a, a woman warrior.
0: Yes, I remember that. Boudicca could rampage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking. Well, even online, I believe in that her online, I found in Red Year the old grind and a late summer night's battle.
1: Oh, yes, I've forgotten that one. <laughs> so. We uh, with your. Producer, I was in Midsummer Night Dream* in, 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 in high school. I played moth.
0: Oh. oh, nice. I will I will put them out there. But I, I think you take us beautifully back to a time when going to the theater was what people did, and oh, yeah. they listened to the radio, and they went to baseball games, and that was kind of entertainment in America in the thirties. And I think you mm-hmm. captured that really well. Thank you, thank you very much. What are you working on next?
1: Ah, what am I working on now? I'm going to have coming out in March, there is a nonfiction piece I have written the chapter on of The I Sing in a book that Rutledge is putting out, 50 Key Stage Musicals. And I know one of the guys who was one of the original editors of this, and he brought me on board early and said, here, you basically have your pick of their there were quite fifty. There were a couple that had been taken, but I was dithering: do I pick Sweeney Todd, which is my favorite musical of all time, or do I go with the Gershwin's?
0: Oh my God, and, that's Chaz's too. That's
1: and I ended. I ended oh. up. I ended up picking of the I Sing, so I got to do the chapter on that, and that's coming out in March. F- fifty key stage musicals.
2: Okay, so I, I mean, I knew you were doing that. I hadn't realized that you'd picked it from a list.
1: Oh yes, so they
2: just decided which were the fifty yes, keys. Yes, yes,
1: that that was that oh, was okay. the editors.
2: Yeah, okay. I
1: don't necessarily when anytime oh. you get things like things like that, you don't need to like why did they take that? You know, but yeah, then absolutely. you know that was that was their prerogative. They're the editors. Yeah,
2: but well, I'm I'm delighted that you picked off the I think because I have I have never seen it, I've never had the opportunity to see it, it has never been happening anywhere near where I live. Well, yeah, you know, mostly I lived in the UK, so there's probably a reason for that. Right. But but the BBC, bless them, did a production. It would be 20-ish years ago, give or take, on the radio. And I I, I got to listen to it. I hope they they kept
1: the the original libretto because there have been attempts to, like CBS did a television production of Mm -hmm. it in 1972, and most of the people that they cast in it were CBS sitcom stars, so it was Carol O'Connor. Playing oh. John Wintergreen, and they were advertising it as Archie Bunker for president. Oh, um,
2: oh and
1: gosh. they rewrote all of the Kaufman and Riskin jokes. Uh, had one of their sitcom writers bring oh. it up, and it's it's it, if you I think this thing is actually on YouTube somewhere. Avoid yeah. it at all costs. Thank you. Um,
2: I will do that. But yeah, no, I, I'm tolerably sure the BBC would would stick to the original. Libretto.
1: Well, this was you know, the first musical that won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, which caused yes. quite a stir.
2: Yes. I, knew, I, I did know that. I love that.
1: Yeah,
0: And I will put links to uh, basically all of these musicals that you've mentioned and the other things we've mentioned on our website, which is hey, awesome. www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. Laura, thank you so much for being here. If people want to come find you, shall they just... Uh, do you have a website? I do not have a website. Uh, okay, well, then I will include other links to other places you can go look her up, especially to where you can order her book. Uh, you can get it in soft format. Is hardback coming soon? Or
1: uh, It is currently on uh, Amazon Kindle only, but the paperback version is coming at the end of this month. I opted for a deal that allegedly would give me slightly more exposure through Amazon and slightly more. Mm-hmm. Higher royalties. I have yet to see this. Basically, I'm just hoping I can, you know, <laughs> find my way that and to, into into the into the black with this. That would be good.
0: Well, uh, everybody needs to run out and buy it right away because it really is truly a marvelous book. Thank you so much. Broadway revival with Laura Franco's. Everybody, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. We've been listening to writers drinking coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg at MinihatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs who lets you buy a red coffee is the best coffee t-shirt anytime you can wear us on your chest. And hey, thanks for listening.